About a month ago, the Center for Medicaid Services, CMS, released guidance that in the future they would only reimburse FDA-approved monoclonal antibodies against amyloid for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease in a CMS-approved randomized controlled trial. To the outside world, this probably doesn't seem like that bad of news. However, the CMS proposal has ignited a firestorm across the U.S. healthcare ecosystem. I'm Dwayne Schultes, the CEO of Vital Transformation, and on this Vital Health podcast, we'll be discussing the potential impact of this guidance by CMS in our research and analysis, which was commissioned and funded by Biogen, released last week at a conference hosted by the Alliance for Aging Research in Washington, D.C. And I'm very pleased to be joined by two of my colleagues today, Dr. Joe Hamming, VT's U.S. Business Director and a neuroscientist extraordinaire. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Hi, Dwayne. I'm doing well, thanks. And I'm also joined by Dr. Harry Bowen, VT's Consulting Economist and a Professional Purveyor of Common Sense. Hello, Harry. How are you? Good afternoon. We modeled the impact of the CMS guidance on R&D for Alzheimer's disease if they actually implement it. Can you describe just sort of top line what that means for Alzheimer's research? Sure. Uh, We uh, looked at uh, 45 therapies at various stages, and we boiled that down to 39 that look financially viable, okay, or at least in theory could provide a rate of return acceptable. And that's under the current scenario. That's under the current scenario. And uh, then we added in the proposed delay of CMS, And uh, we found that only three of these uh, um, clinical developments had a positive return, which was uh, pretty devastating, quite devastating. What does that mean if you're an investor? Generally, you're looking for something to provide a return on your investment. And if I have a positive ROI, that means I have the possibility of getting a return on my investment. And then the question becomes... Well, how does that compare to alternatives? So uh, positive is uh, necessary, but not sufficient to be able to say that I'm willing to make this investment. What would be the impact of that for an Alzheimer's company or a series of investors? What does that do to the system as a whole, the ecosystem? Well, it freezes it up. I mean, in the sense that people just don't want to make those investments. I mean, it's pretty clear if I can't get a return on my investment, I'm not going to make that investment. So this just creates an enormous amount of uncertainty for the investor because it's not clear whether that's going to be subject to the same CMS conditions that they're now imposing. So there's this just adds uncertainty to the whole outlook, which is already a highly risky investment given particularly the rate of failure for Alzheimer's uh, trials. Joe, before coming to VT, you ran Pfizer's global science policy shop for a decade. Uh, You were also a neuroscientist who's extensively researched Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease as a bench scientist and other neurological disorders. The failure rate for Alzheimer's is really high, 99%, according to our research. Why is Alzheimer's so challenging? What makes it so difficult? Alzheimer's and dementias um, involves the slow generally a slow process of degeneration of the neurons and the central nervous system, the loss of processing power of your, of your brain. The brain is a very complicated <laughs> computer. It is, uh, many people say it's the most uh, complicated computer uh, that's ever been devised. This brain is friable. It's very, very fragile, has uh, connections, 
in the area of 100 trillion uh, synapses, that is connections between different neurons in, in the brain. So when you start talking about something on that scale, it's just a difficult, it's a difficult problem to dissect. We look at drug development is across the board is, is a difficult process. It takes years, decades in many cases, uh, and the failure rate is high across all of the therapeutic areas. But when you talk about something as complicated as the brain, it is not accessible like our skin or, you know, internal organs. You know, you try not to <laughs> get into someone's brain. It's difficult. Plus, you have this additional issue with the brain. It's called the blood-brain barrier. It is these blood vessels in the brain are designed differently. Many of the molecules that we use in medicine today don't traverse that blood-brain barrier. It's a complicated uh, disease and a complicated organ. And a lot of the research right now is really focused on specifically the amyloid beta plaque. As we all know in the team, I've been somewhat critical of this because it's been a graveyard of R&D. But the reality is, a few years ago, I'd moderated a panel with um, Peter Yellowvisser, who's one of the leading academics in this space, and he presented data about the amyloid plaque. And, and one of the challenges you see is these plaques are a really good indicator of the onset of Alzheimer's, but you have to do it 10 years before because the plaques build up for 10 years, then reach their peak, and only then do you get detectable levels of the onset of cognitive disorder that's related to Alzheimer's disease. It's difficult from a, an IP standpoint. By the time you can actually prove it, you're running out of patent. But we know that something is going on biologically because the indications are just so strong. Is it right, in your opinion, Joe, as a bench scientist who worked in this space, is it right for CMS basically in their ruling to say, okay, we're not just saying a particular drug, we're saying we're going to zero out and put all classes of amyloid research in this delay. What is that going to do to the whole field of research in that space? Well, it's hard to look at a rule like that, a, a rule change like that as having a positive impact on, on the, you know, the investment strategies going forward. My big question is, what is to stop the CMS from doing this for other areas sure. in Alzheimer's disease? What's to stop them from doing it in other areas of, of neurodegenerative disease in, as a broad class? I think we need every single opportunity we can to treat a disease as complicated as this. And again, I'm a very big proponent of the idea that multiple therapies are going to be needed in a complicated disease. We already see that in oncology and, and uh, other areas. We see that in cardiovascular disease. You need a beta blocker perhaps to, you know, to, to lower blood pressure, a beta blocker, a calcium channel inhibitor. You need a, a combination of therapies. And that's, I think, what we're, we're definitely going to see in the neurosciences. It's complicated enough that various strategies, a neuroprotective strategy to stop the death of neurons, a drug to modify, shut down this accumulation or the processing of this beta amyloid in the first place. That seems to make perfect sense. When you have this buildup, it's toxic, it kills neurons perhaps, but if you can slow it down you can stop the accumulation of it. It's very much like treating oncology. You want to kill 
the errant cells before they get a chance to take hold. You keep it in a chronic state perhaps, but you need the ability to modify these disease processes. In Alzheimer's, it takes a long time for this buildup to occur. In some cases, there are early onset and the disease process occurs relatively quickly, but there's are fewer cases that are like that. We have this ongoing process that loss of gray matter in our brain and in Alzheimer's brains, that process needs to be slowed or stopped. Essentially, CMS has said we're not going to allow any of these without an extended trial. We looked at 551 various clinical trials. There were only three approvals. Two of those are actually repurposed drugs that are now generic. If you're an early stage investor, what does this mean to you when you're looking at risk? I mean, if your risk is three in 551, that's 99.5% failure rate. What does that mean practically? Uh, Well, it's devastating again. I mean, it's just adding in an element of risk that, you know, just complicates the whole decision-making apparatus because, you know, we we can look historically, let's say, at clinical trials and things and how many things are successes and that, you know, we use what's called the uh, frequentist interpretation of probabilities, right? And that's how many times have we done it and how many times it have failed. But if you look at government action, it's whimsical, right? (laughs) I mean, it's whimsical. Sometimes more whimsical than others. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, it's whimsical. I mean, you try to get it. This is, you know, goes back to the old thing of, you know, what's the probability of life on Mars? And sometimes the frequentist interpretation doesn't do you very well because I think, you know, if you go by how much life have we observed on Mars, it's zero. So what's the probability of life on Mars? It's zero. But inherently, you probably would want to think, I think it's probably a little different than zero, right? (laughs) So you have this notion of, of personal probabilities, but then those can vary widely, Okay, so some people are going to be very risk averse in the context that they're going to say, whoa, this is an event that now makes this kind of thing very likely and I and I, and I can't figure it out. And there will be some who say, oh, I just don't think it'll happen. I'm willing to forego it. So now there's no kind of one set of probabilities in the sense that people can sort of agree on. And I'm not saying they have to do that, but this is just this thing of adding this level of uncertainty in terms of what's going on. Based on that uncertainty, if you look at our research, one of our recommendations or what we've said in our DAC, hey, this is probably going to put a pall on the whole sector. And Lilly had a drug that they were putting to registration and they just pulled it from the market. Yeah, and they said, bingo. Nope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bingo. And and I think that's telling. That's telling. And, and you know, they, they don't know what to do. I mean, they do know what to do. We're going to stop until they can figure out how this thing is going to end up and transpire. Joe, have you spoken to any of your former colleagues? I mean, what's been their opinion of this? Well, there's a great deal of fear. I'm sure. Uh, You know, we cite this paper from from Neuron, um, this push-pull sort of incentives. That's Uh, a great paper. Yeah, it'd be great to talk about that, please. Yeah, we we will. Um, When you have a class of, a therapeutic class that, that has everything stacked against it, poor diagnostics, Alzheimer's up until not that long ago was diagnosed really the definitive diagnosis with a with a brain slice. Yeah, which is hard to do when you're alive. Which is impossible <laughs> to do when you're alive. And it, it you know so there are a few people. It's, it it's can getting, be done. It's, get, it's, it's getting better, but that is one of the main challenges. If you're not able to measure 
in real time, very quickly, in a non-lethal uh, <laughs> way, you know, uh, repeated measures that are non-invasive, that are really good endpoints, that, that's what you need in drug development. That's why cardiovascular drugs moved so quickly and, and why there are so many of them and why they're so successful because it's blood pressure, it's, it's, it's cholesterol level. These are simple, simple tests that are, that are available. It makes drug development much easier. Again, I'm never, ever going to say that drug development <laughs> across the board is easy because only a few dozen get approved every year in, here in the United States. So that's, I think that's a, a pretty good indicator that it's difficult. But if you're trying to develop something like this for dementia, for Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases, if there isn't going to be an acceptance of, of, of what comes along with good clinical endpoints or, or not, if you're not going to get a return, there is just no way that they're going to continue. Many companies are going to continue to make these, these massive investments. Dwayne, we've, we've talked to so many people in Washington that feel that the biopharmaceutical industry is so profitable. All the pressures that we put on them, that government and payers put on them, somehow they're refractory to these pressures. You can beat them up. You can limit their reimbursements. And, and they're going to keep on uh, doing what they're meant to do. I don't believe that's the case. And we've seen, as referenced, this Neuron paper, which we'll make available. It showed back in the period of, of 2009, 2009 to 2014. 2014, a five-year period, shows this dramatic decline in the number of neuroscience programs at, at the 12 or so major largest biopharmaceutical companies. 50% drop. And, and we know, we know that that was 2014. We're in 22, that's eight years. We know that it's reduced. And something like this, a rule like this, a, a challenge like this is not going to push that in the right direction. It's, it's going to get much more difficult. So the ruling focuses specifically on amyloid, but obviously there are other indications, tau, that are you know equally as challenging. Again, there's a long term for onset. They don't necessarily predict linearly. Is this ruling also going to impact stuff that's outside of the amyloid envelope, like tau and other things? You know, when you talk to people that are working in this area, they recognize that the vast majority of investment has been in the beta amyloid hypothesis. The vast majority. The adherence to some of the other prion, proteins, viral hypothesis of Alzheimer's, tau, all these others have been, many scientists believe they've been shortchanged. So it's the, all the eggs have been put in the beta amyloid basket. Not all, but the greater share has been put there. What does that mean? That we haven't pushed other areas forward at the same pace. And again, as I firmly believe, it will take multiple drugs across different modes of action. It will take different drugs in order to solve a problem as difficult as Alzheimer's. What a ruling like this could do is, again, push the companies so far that they just simply are not going to make these investments. And as I was alluding to just a moment ago, as we speak with people in Washington, there is a sense that these 
areas like Alzheimer's and the really difficult things are going to always be there <laughs> for the pharmaceutical industry. The pharmaceutical industry isn't going to worry about antihistamines and cardiovascular drugs anymore. They're going to go after the hardest things because they'll get reimbursed for it. That's false. That's not going to happen. The most risky things are going to be, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, the first that get are going to be first to get chopped. Yeah. And, and, we're all, and again, the, we see that over and over again. So it's a fallacy. The trend line has been showing roughly a halving of the amount of research in general in neurological disorders every 10 years. Yeah. One would think that that would happen again. If this continues, it would actually accelerate. Harry, we did a lot of work looking at the whole idea of an HTA in Europe. We compared the U.S. system to the European system to the Japanese system. We've looked at those pricing impacts of putting an HTA process in place, essentially what CMS is acting like here by overruling the FDA is essentially becoming a health technology assessor, sort of putting a different ruling in place based beyond what the regulatory decision is. What's the impact on innovation from our data? Well, I think it's it's not all that much different from the uh, international reference pricing work that we've done and that type of thing. People are sort of waiting for things to materialize, and then they're thinking only that, well, we need to now control the cost of that. For some reason, it just seems like, and I, I'm sure they think about this, but they don't reveal it uh, in their actions, and that is, well, what is the secondary implication of this? So as you well know, and when one looks at government policies, there's always that idea of unintended consequences, right? You know, that's the kind of thing that we generally look at is, okay, what are these secondary and tertiary things we should be thinking about, which others would call unintended consequences? So I think that, you know, the idea of HTAs, international reference pricing, all of these things sound good as the first pass, but nobody thinks beyond that. And what all research does, of course, is to go that next step and say, well, how does that affect the chain of activity that led to this, you know, drug or whatever it may be? And so any of these kinds of policies are going to create secondary so-called unintended consequences, right. uh, which are going to devastate, in particular in the sectors that we've been looking at in biotechnology, or would just devastate it. It's just unfathomable to me that people would ignore that. And, and, and again, I mean, they can be what the politicians or policymakers say, what they know behind. So there must be, and I hate to be a conspiracy person, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, there, there must be some alternative motive uh, behind many of these things. Because uh, I think most people would look at this and say, okay, everything is free now, but there ain't going to be any more of that the next day. Yeah, free, it's gone. Free works once, and yeah, then, free works once, and and it's over. Joe, one of the things that came out about the ruling recently was Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA director. He was very critical, and and his point was this potentially puts at risk the uh, accelerated approval pathway, which is really interesting. I hadn't thought of that when we started looking at this project, but it does make sense. Can you explain a little bit what the accelerated approval pathway is and why it's needed? Well, this is a process 
the accelerated approval process, which has been designed to allow companies to rapidly bring a drug to market, not by cutting corners, but by advancing, speeding the speeding up the process in its four areas of unmet need. So it isn't going to happen with a another cardiovascular another, drug, or yeah. a, you know, or it, it, this is for unmet medical need. This is desperate patients who need these these therapies where there is nothing. It's very easy to put yourself in the shoes of a patient who's suffering from something like Alzheimer's. The family of the sufferer uh, from Alzheimer's, something you yeah, dealt, dealt with, with your, recently, in absolutely. your home, yeah. uh, you know, with your mother-in-law. And, and it's unfathomable to family members that if there's something that could be available, let us have it. Let us try it. And, and we see this in oncology especially because sure. people are so desperate for a therapy. It's really hard as scientists and clinicians to look at something and say, no, you can't. We need to do it this way, and that's the only way. So it's a mechanism which allows for not willy-nilly, but in certain cases, well-reasoned, well-researched areas where something can come to the market very, very quickly, much more quickly, excuse me, than would otherwise. It has largely been the oncology space that has benefited uh, from this, again, for that obvious reason. It's a devastating disease. But we're going to see much more of it. And I think there's a good sound reasoning for more of it. That is an accelerated approval process. But there is pushback. There is significant pushback because many believe that this isn't as scientifically sound. It isn't as careful as need be. Uh, I think we need to take that one step at a time, though. We need to dissect that. That's going to be looked at very, very carefully now. Uh, yeah, Robert Califf. Yeah. Robert Califf, who just got approval, Senate approval on Thursday or Wednesday or Thursday of this week, he has vowed to take a very hard look at the accelerated approval process, where it should be used and where it shouldn't be used. That's going to be a very interesting process. Well, yeah. And again, one of the other points about the accelerated approval that I think needs to be brought up is it's often used in areas where it's really hard to get at the evidence, like an orphan drug or a rare disease. 80% of rare diseases are for less than one in a million indication. So in the United States, that means your maximum population in 80% of these potential targets are three, 400 right. people. That's it. Yep. So the idea that you're going to be able to run a clinical trial quickly in an, a really serious orphan designation with micro-orphan is impossible. I mean, that's where it's used a lot. It seems to me this, this is all on the table now, which is kind of, again, quite scary because that's where the science is going. Right. I like the example of oncology because it works so well to explain this process. The hopes of the industry and of people working in oncology have thought, we want a silver bullet. We want a cancer drug that's going to stop it in its tracks, whether it's lung cancer or pancreatic cancer or breast cancer. That isn't the way it works. The way that drug development is going, this inexorable forward push to understand the genetics of disease forces drug developers and, and the academic partners and government partners to be continually parsing and looking at why a particular mutation in, uh, in our genome causes a particular cancer. 
And what's really very interesting is when you look at these, in some of these indications, and you may have a patient population, a very small, of, in, numbered in the dozens or, or hundreds, and a drug that would on paper be appropriate for all the patients with a certain mutation, yet there are many patients who don't respond. Right. If you don't run that to ground, if you don't understand why a drug doesn't work, when it should work, when you look at the genetics of the, the disease, those are critically important uh, lessons that can be learned. And that's certainly, you can extrapolate that to the neurosciences for sure. It's more complicated perhaps, but equally devastating to you know those who are you know waiting for a cure to end their suffering. We've spent a lot of time on the Hill. We've fought against many of these policies that have not necessarily been well thought out, in our opinion, at this firm. But one of the things the cynics always tell us is, well, you know, who cares? It's only hurting the companies, the investors. We get less drugs. What does it matter? What's the impact, really? What does it stop? Harry, what's your opinion of that? Uh, That's incredible, actually. I mean, you know, what does it matter? Well, I think we were just talking about it in terms of, you know, any one person suffering, right? So uh, in that sense, it's life and death, right? Or life, uh, you know, it's life or a life of, of debilitation or whatever it may be or, or other kind, whatever would be the effects of the problems that a person is having. As an economist, of course, we try not to look at these individual level cases and we try to look at the overall sort of cost benefit uh, idea but to to think it doesn't matter to an individual is naive Richard Feynman and he did an appendix when he was on the presidential committee for the uh, Challenger disaster in the last sentence of that appendix I've always loved it said science doesn't respond to public relations I'm paraphrasing slightly <laughs> I think that uh, this goes in more metaphysical ways it has to do with power and many of the things that permeate the world of politics. So, Joe, when you hear someone say it doesn't matter, it's, it's irrelevant, you know, we'll just get less drugs, big deal. What's your opinion of that as someone's been in the industry for 30 years? Man? Well, I, you know, that's, I mean, that's silly. It's, <laughs> that's a silly attitude. I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm an eternal optimist when it comes to how we're developing, how our science is developing. There are setbacks. And, you know, we don't do it all perfectly, that's for sure. But I am optimistic because in the United States, we take on challenges and we solve problems. Diseases, whether it's cancer, Alzheimer's, or cardiovascular diseases, exact a cost on people, but also on the healthcare system. It's expensive to treat Alzheimer's patients. They live on average about seven to eight years, up to 10 years. And their inability to work, they have to be round the clock care, and it gets worse. A family member usually is the caregiver. Which they is leave an, the workforce, at least which in is our an, experience, uh, definitely. It's a double impact. We are right now approximately five and a half to six million people suffering from Alzheimer's in this country today. By 2050, the projection is that it will be 14 million people in the United States alone suffering from Alzheimer's. The costs are astronomical. The costs are going to be even more astronomical. When we look at the cost of healthcare, 
What's frustrated to me, and has frustrated me for decades, is we always look at drugs as a cost in healthcare. We don't look at drugs as a savings in healthcare. <laughs> we see these enormously successful therapies to lower blood pressure, lower cholesterol, raise the level of good cholesterol. It adds decades onto the lives of, of many patients. My, my father died at 69 years old in 1979. He was lean, he didn't exercise, but he looked healthy and he died of a massive heart attack. That was the days long before, there were some blood pressure medicines around, but there wasn't a way to, to really effectively control cholesterol. Collectively, science has done, has brought so many of these incredibly important cardiovascular drugs and we're living much longer lives. And what that does is it exposes us to- Other stuff. Other stuff. Yeah. That's why cancer rates are increasing. Statistically, the cancer rate goes from one in three to one in two between right. 60 and 80, historically. Right. right. And why are we seeing more Alzheimer's patients? Because in the turn of the century, people lived until they're 50. To now the uh, you know, life expectancy in the United States is what, 78 or nine for men? Well, I think it's age. even, it's getting above 80, yeah. I would yeah. think, yeah. As we live longer, something is gonna get us. We should not be looking at therapies that keep people out of a hospital from getting transplant surgery, all these very expensive uh, treatments. We need to look at lowering the cost of healthcare through the proper use of new therapies uh, that are being developed by the biopharmaceutical industry and their partners in academia and government. The one I always like to use is the, you know, the value chain assessment we did on Savaldi. Everyone was screaming bloody murder about the cost of Savaldi when it came out you know, the $1,000 pill, blah, blah, blah. But in fact, when you looked at the whole value chain, $80,000 versus over $200,000 per patient if you didn't use Savaldi. So in fact, you were saving $120,000 in real terms per patient, but no one wants to look at it that way, unfortunately. Yeah, I, that's right, Dwayne. I, I, I completely agree. The one point that, that I think is lost also is, is always lost in the debate around uh, neurodegenerative disease like, like Alzheimer's. If we can get to a point where we have a very accurate, precise identification of patients who are going to suffer from Alzheimer's, as they're beginning to slip, as they're losing their keys, or they're in the very early stages of disease, if we can stop it in its tracks and so that it doesn't progress, that's a huge win. Yeah. It's gonna, it, again, it allows the person to live their life, to interact with their family, perhaps work, and that would be the ideal thing. But again, the people who are suffering at home, having to take care of this person, who's this loved one who's suffering, if we can slow that process down, that would be a huge boon to the healthcare system and people who are suffering from this terrible disease. CMS made a decision based on the approval of one drug. And as I've always said around this decision, it, cert it certainly seems like it's the classic case of the road to hell being paved with good intentions. We, I think we all here agree that this is gonna have devastating impacts, unintended consequences. It's gonna have aspects far beyond the initial intended uh, target of the ruling. Now, if we wanted to make a recommendation as to what else CMS could have done or maybe should be doing instead of imposing this sort of 
hatchet rule of a mandatory three-year extension on anything that's targeting amyloid what else could they have done harry do you have any ideas what else they could do well i i think you probably we have to look at the motives for cms right why why is cms want to do this so if we look at it from the standpoint of the cost that cms views itself as having to pay for a moderately relatively expensive drug for a lot more people than typically it might uh, have these very expensive drugs applied to. They're looking at the cost side, but I think the discussion that you just had, you and Joe, and and all that, of course, is a classic opportunity cost sure. uh, idea. One does need to do the cost-benefit analysis sure. in that context, and to say that if you could uh, slow down or prevent this type of thing, then there's an enormous savings that comes along with that. But this kind of goes to the whole way accounting gets done You're in right. the government, right? I mean, uh, there's no capital account. There's so nobody looks at things going over time. Everything is this year, this year, this year. They they make this uh, silly stuff of every you know over a ten year period. But I think that's really the the problem here. The problem is this emphasis on what it's going to cost CMS and and the taxpayer, quite frankly. But you know that's the system. And the system that we have. So, you know, if, if you don't like that, then change the system. But don't play God. I mean, maybe that's the way I could say it. I, I don't think it's up to them to decide, you know, this kind of thing. As I understand it, this is more the, the domain of the FDA and that. And apparently they don't trust them. <laughs> which is not unusual in government but uh but but i i think that i think that's really the also part of the precedent here right because a lot of it under the surface too is this idea of who has the authority to make these kinds of decisions what is the role of the fda what is the role of cms people are getting out of their lane here joe what's your opinion what else could have been done here well i think you have to take a broad look at what the impact is going to be on the entire sector. And that's clearly not been done. That is what worries me most. Because what are the knock-on effects across the neurosciences, the neurodegenerative diseases, and then beyond? Some sort of a a conversation with the firms that are involved in this work uh, would have been a, a, a better approach to work out something that would, to not put the accelerated approval process, first of all, in the crosshairs as a problem, when in fact it's an incredibly important process. But I think it would have started with a dialogue, in my opinion. It would have been much more productive. Joe, Harry, I'm sure, as always, we'll have this debate over dinner, and like we usually do. <laughs> <laughs> so here, here. with that, great to see you guys. Yeah. Great to see you, Dwayne. Thank, Thank you, Dwayne.